Now, those are two words that you might not expect to see next to each other. One of them, you're probably not too surprised or would expect to see here in a church. The other, maybe not so much. To be holy means to be set apart as for sacred purposes, to be pure, clean, good, dedicated to God. Makes sense that we would be talking about that here in a church, right? But when it comes to sex and sexuality, sometimes people have a lot of conflicted thoughts and feelings about that. I mean, sexual attraction, sexual desire is a universal, virtually universal human experience. And yet, a lot of us have great difficulty speaking openly and, honest about it, openly and honestly about it. Sex is necessary for the continuation of the human race. And yet, for a lot of people, it still feels like maybe it's kind of dirty. Sex can be a source of great joy and intimacy, yet at the same time, it can leave us feeling empty, used, even deeply violated. And then on top of this, of course, there's our society's ever-evolving and oftentimes contradictory messages and ideas about sex and sexuality and sexual identity. I mean, it's no surprised that so many people are so confused about what to even think about these things. That's true of many Christians as well. But I've got some good news, and that is that we do have a source that we can look to for direction, for explanation on how to think about and how to live faithfully in a sexually confused time in society like we live in. And that source, that resource that we have is the Bible. Now, maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're surprised that I would make such a claim as that. I mean, after all, what can a first century text possibly have for us here in the 21st century, especially on a topic like this one? I mean, Pretty much, isn't the Bible just totally restrictive when it comes to sex? I mean, it's basically against it, right? A lot of people think that that's true, but it's actually not. The Bible's message about sex is actually very sex positive, if not sexually permissive. Now, we don't have time to talk about all of that. But this morning, we are going to take a look at at least some of what the Bible has to teach us about sex and sexuality and how to follow Jesus in that way. We're in the midst of a series from the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We've learned that this book is actually really a letter written by the great missionary, church planter, church leader, uh, Paul, to the church that he started in the city of Thessalonica, which is located in modern-day Greece. This city uh, in which this city was located was big, it was prosperous, it was very religious, 
but not at all Christian. And like in most Greco-Roman cities of that time, societal attitudes about sexual behavior were very tolerant, especially sexual activity outside of marriage. In fact, at that time, it was generally accepted, even expected, that men would continue to have sexual relationships with other women, whether prostitutes or female slaves or mistresses, even after they were married. In fact, this is an attitude that was exemplified uh, in the words of one of the famous Greek philosophers who actually defended these practices by explaining, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. This was the prevailing attitude. And in fact, this way of thinking was so widespread and also destabilizing at times to societies that one of the Roman emperors, Augustus, actually established, tried to establish a series of laws to try to rein all of this in. But history tells us that his attempts at reforming sexual practices ultimately failed. And perhaps in part because in Greco-Roman societies, even the worship of their gods was oftentimes sexualized. Sexualized to the point that many of their temples earned themselves reputations for it. And so it was into this sexually focused, sexually charged, and sexually tolerant environment that Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in this city to help them know how to live well and faithfully as followers of Jesus. And so this morning we are going to hear Paul remind the Thessalonians that the key to pleasing God is to pursue holiness, including sexual holiness. We're going to see him describe what sexual holiness looks like, and then we're going to learn why it does matter that Christians get this aspect of following Jesus right. So you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I forgot to look up the page number in the red Bible. So Jeff, can I put you on the spot, and can you tell us what page... 1 Thessalonians 4 is on. 837? 1,000. 1,837. Is that correct? All right, we got it. Now, if you're not using a red Bible, that does you no good. But if you're using a red Bible, 1837. Thank you, guys. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul here begins this part of the letter by reminding the Thessalonians that the key to pleasing God is to pursue holiness. Uh, look at verse 1, which is where we're going to start. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. So Paul here begins this part of the letter by reminding the Thessalonians of what he had taught them previously. 
And that is that the way to please God is to pursue holiness, or depending on your translation, like the NIV, to be sanctified. That means the same thing. See, the people who had become the church here in Thessalonica, they came from a wide variety of backgrounds and different beliefs and and all sorts of different experiences. But when Paul and Silas and Timothy first came to their city and taught them about the one true God, and these people then decided to start following him instead of the other gods that were worshipped in their city, Paul began teaching them how to reorient their lives according to the one true God's values, methods, and priorities. The God that Paul taught them about is the one who's revealed to us in the Bible. He's the God who created the world with both intention and care, and then designed human beings to be his representatives to rule the world with him. Now, this glorious vision for how things could be does seem very different than it is today. And that's because instead of embracing this incredible privilege and opportunity, the first human beings, and frankly, every one of us since then, have rejected God's rightful rule, believing that we know better than God how best to live in this world. And this rebellion brought and continues to bring brokenness, pain, and sin into this world in which we live. But Paul's message for them about this God was good news. It was gospel. Because he also showed them that God's love for humanity is so great and God's plan to make a people for himself is so unstoppable that God was willing to send his own son into the world to be the true rescuer king that we all need and long for. God's son, Jesus, he lived among us, showing us how to truly live. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the times that we haven't. And so Paul told them all about Jesus. How he lived, how he died, and how he rose again. The one who ascended to his throne in heaven is one day going to come again to claim those who follow him. And to finally and forever fix all that's broken in our world. And so this is the God that Paul taught the Thessalonians to please and how to please. This good and loving God who had gone to such great lengths in order to redeem them. And in this part of the letter, Paul praises the Thessalonian Christians there for the ways that they are already doing this, while also encouraging them to continue doing it more and more. Because as Paul says at the beginning of verse 3, it is God's will, it is God's desire, it's God's plan for them that they should be sanctified or that they should be holy. As I mentioned earlier in the introduction, to be sanctified or to be holy, it means to be set apart as for sacred purposes. It means to be pure, to be good, to be clean, to be dedicated to God. And in fact, if you consider this particular command in the scope of all that God is doing across the span of human history, what we realize is that this is all about human beings being restored to who they were always designed and created to be. God's image bearers, his representatives doing his work in his world in his way. 
And the Bible tells us that for Christians, holiness is both a new reality and an ongoing process. In Christ, we are made holy, we are sanctified, and by following Christ, we are becoming more holy and more sanctified. It's both new reality, we are His redeemed representatives, and it's an ongoing process. We are learning to do a better and better job of becoming His faithful representatives. And so the second half of this letter to the Thessalonians is all about this idea. It's all about becoming more and more like the humans that we were always designed to be in several important areas. The first area, which is the one that we're going to look at today, is in the area of sexuality. And so let's see how we're supposed to do this. As Paul continues, he instructs the Thessalonian believers to pursue what I'm calling sexual holiness. Verse 3. Kind of just going back a little bit. He writes, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So in order to please God, we need to practice sexual holiness. And this is true whether we live in the first century or whether we live in the 21st century. And Paul here, he describes three ways in which we, in which we are to do this. We are to avoid sexual immorality. We are to learn to control our sexual desires and behavior. And we are not to wrong or to take advantage of others. And so let's take a few minutes to look a little bit more closely at each of these. The first thing that Paul says is he talks about practicing sexual holiness. Uh, and in order to do this, we need to avoid sexual immorality, is what he says. Now, this term, sexual immorality, is, is uh, intentionally a very broad term, which describes any and all sexual activity that's outside of the sexual ethic of Jesus. Now, the sexual ethic of Jesus, which is the sexual ethic taught in the Bible, it can really be summed up this way. Sex is a good gift from God designed and created to be experienced in lifelong heterosexual marriage. Now, obviously, as you listen to that summary of it, there are restrictions that are being placed on it. There are inherent restrictions uh, in that statement. But these restrictions that God puts on sexual expression are not because sex is bad, but because sex is good. This is a profoundly sex-positive ethic. According to Jesus, according to the Bible... The purpose of sex includes procreation, intimacy, pleasure. But like so many other good things in this world, it gets ruined and can ruin us and others when it's not properly limited. And I don't just mean by consent. And I think you know this to be true. 
I mean, think about it. Everything from ice cream to exercise can actually harm and even kill us when it's not limited to its proper time and place. And so what we have here is by God's design and purpose, sex is made for lifelong covenantal marriage. This is God's design and purpose for human sexuality. And so all other kinds of sexual expression and in all other contexts are what the Bible and, frankly, Jesus call sexual immorality. It falls short of sexual holiness, and it's contrary to how God desires and expects his people to live in the world, whether his ancient people or his modern people like us. So that means in order for us to please God, we need to avoid sexual immorality. The second way to pursue sexual holiness, according to Paul, is that we need to learn to control our sexual desire and behavior. Paul writes, Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans. So this text here is telling us that in order to live in ways that please God, we need to learn to control our sexual desire and behaviors. And again, remember, sexual desire is not in and of itself bad. It is part of the way that God has designed us. But our desires, like everything, have been tainted by the sin and brokenness that we've brought into this world. And what that means is that we shouldn't, that we can't then automatically trust and follow our desires just because we have them. See, our desires, whether we're talking sexual desires or any other kind of desires, can be and often are twisted and tainted by the effects of sin in this world. And that means that we can very easily desire the wrong person or desire them in the wrong way. We can make these desires into the guiding principles of our decisions. We can allow our desires to become an idol, to become a god. We might not call it that, yet it becomes that when we start to believe that these are things that we must have if we can possibly be happy and fulfilled in life. What Paul says here is, don't let sexual desires take you captive. Instead, you have to learn how to control them. Because if you don't control them, then they are going to control you. You know, our society often says, if it feels good, if this is what you want, then just go for it. Just trust your heart. Just follow your desire. But see, the Bible says, you were made for more than this. Sex is good, but you have to learn to control your desires and your behaviors. Or, in the brokenness of this world, you will become a slave to them. The third way to practice sexual holiness is to not wrong or to take advantage of others. Paul says, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Now, in ancient Thessalonica, like in most ancient Greco-Roman society, uh, it was women in particular, especially younger women, uh, who were 
most vulnerable to exploitation by men. By men who cared far more about indulging their sexual desires than about the women that they were using in order to do so. Whether we're talking prostitutes, female slaves, women from lower classes who were taken as mistresses. This was a largely accepted practice in Greco-Roman society. But Paul here, he wants to make it perfectly clear that there is no place for this kind of behavior and practice in the church, nor anywhere amongst God's people. It is not okay for people to use other people this way. This is not how God has designed us to relate to each other, ever. Now, thankfully, today, there are better legal and societal protections for women. But we know that exploitation continues, whether sex trafficking or prostitution, pornography, just to name a few of the ways. But this text is not just applicable to exploitive industries. This is a text that also speaks to the young man who's pressuring his girlfriend to sleep with him. To the supervisor expecting sexual favors and the granting of a promotion. To the woman who manipulates clients or co-workers through flirting. We are not to use sexual desire, whether our own or that of others, to wrong or to take advantage of them. This is not how to please God. This is not what sexual holiness looks like. Well, I think God's vision of sexual holiness is clear enough, it still begs the question, how much does this really matter? I mean, ancient Greco-Roman society was sexually permissive and tolerant. Our society is becoming increasingly sexual permissive and tolerant as well. And so let's be honest, this stuff happens all the time, right? How much does it really matter if we don't follow Jesus in this area? If we don't actually pursue sexual holiness like we're instructed to in this text? It's a fair question. Well, Paul does explain why it does matter and why it is important that we pursue sexual holiness. He writes, starting about halfway through verse 6, he writes, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, meaning Paul, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So Paul here, he concludes this portion of the text where he's talking about sexual holiness by demonstrating that sexual holiness is in fact something that matters to God. And he does so in a, what I will call a noteworthy and very expansive way. Because he involves all three members of the Trinity, Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. And in doing so, he looks forward, he looks backward, and to the present. Let me show you. First, 
What Paul does here is he points towards future judgment by the Lord Jesus. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Step back for a moment just to give you the big picture, remind you of the big picture. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he returned to heaven. But he also promised that he's going to come again. And not just to claim those who belong to him and to finally and forever fix all that's broken in our world, but he's also coming in order to bring judgment to those who don't follow him and who don't pursue sexual holiness. All kinds of holiness, but also sexual holiness. To bring judgment to those who instead indulge in sexual immorality, who didn't restrain their sexual desires, and who have wronged and took advantage of others. And so what we have here is actually a pretty clear answer to anyone who might wonder whether Jesus really cares about our sex lives. He does. Paul assures us that he does. And that this is one of the standards by which he will judge people when he returns what the text says. Warnings about this future judgment might seem like nothing but bad news for everyone. But I think it's important for us to recognize that for some it's not. For some, these words are comfort. They're consolation their hope. See, in a world where, where too many women, too many children, too many people are sexually exploited, seemingly without penalty, Paul's words here declare that this is not always going to be the case. He is saying to those who've been used, who've been abused, who've been exploited by others, the king is coming And when he does, he is going to bring you true and lasting justice, even if you haven't found it here on earth. In addition to looking forward to the future judgment of Jesus, Paul also points his readers backwards to the past. He points back to the call that God the Father put on his specially chosen people when he falls when he first called them, and this would include us who are followers of Jesus. Paul says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's what he says there in verse 7. See, God never intended human beings to be driven and controlled by their lusts. He didn't design us to live, to indulge our every desire. God designed, he created us to be his image bearers in this world to be the visible representatives of the invisible God. To be set apart for sacred purposes. To be pure, to be good, to be dedicated to God. This is what we are called to. And this is incredible privilege and opportunity and responsibility. This is where we come from. 
Finally, Paul points to the present, to the now, to this time when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're followers of Jesus. He writes, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, meaning Paul, again, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. In another one of Paul's letters, uh, the, the letter that he wrote, the first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, Paul explains to the Christians there that because of Jesus, they have become temples. They are temples of God. Because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, now dwells inside of them. They have become sacred space. And as such, there is no place for sin in their lives, including sexual sins. Through the death of Jesus, God has cleansed them. He's made them holy. He's given them his spirit. So now it is so important that we be who we are, sexually holy. There are many reasons why a text like this, why a message like this can be uncomfortable. Or maybe to put it more bluntly, just unwelcome. Because it challenges some of our culture's prevailing values. Because it's one that impinges on some of our freedoms. Because it's one that triggers feelings of guilt and shame. Because it seems like it calls us to a standard that's impossible for us to ever live up to. All four of those things are true. But no matter which of those four hits closest home for you, closest to home for you, there's good news. There's good news. See, God didn't just design and create this world, tell us how he wanted us to live in it, and then step away, basically leaving us on our own to figure it all out. Instead, God came into this world in order to show us how to do it. See, God took on human flesh, and he became one of us. And in doing so, he experienced all the same pressures, all the same desires, all the same temptations that we do. But unlike us, he embraced perfect sexual holiness. When he came, Jesus challenged his culture's prevailing values, showing us how to live according to a different and better set of values, methods, and priorities. 
And Jesus, when he came, instead of coming to restrict our freedom, he came to show us how to be truly free, not free to indulge our every desire because that inevitably only leads to slavery, but free from the sin and shame that keeps us from being able to be who we were always designed and created to be, God's representatives in God's world living God's way. And in Jesus, we have a model to follow. We have someone who avoided all forms of sexual immorality, who learned to control his body in ways that were always holy and honorable, who lived and traveled and worked alongside men and women and children without ever wronging or taking advantage of them. And Jesus did this in order to show us how we are supposed to live. But he also died for all the times we don't. The standard for sexual holiness may seem like an impossible standard for anyone to live up to. And in a real sense, it is. But we're still called to pursue it. And for all the times that we mess it up, we fail, we come up short, there is forgiveness in Christ. He lived the sexually holy life that we were supposed to live because he knows that we cannot do it. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for all the times we haven't. This is part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that there is forgiveness for those who have sinned and there is cleansing for those who've been sinned against. And that means that we can be sexually holy like we've been called to be. I know that any honest talk about Sex and sexuality can stir up difficult feelings and thoughts and, and even memories for some people. No matter what it is that you might be feeling right now or thinking or remembering, it is so important that you know this. There is hope, there is healing, there is redemption in Jesus. He gets it. He loves you. And he has more than this for you. And if you want him, he will never turn away from you. No matter what you may have done. Or no matter what may have ever been done to you. If you want to talk more about this with me or with one of the elders or deacons, um, we are available to do that. Uh, just let us know. I know that this is a heavy, difficult topic. There's hope, there's cleansing, there's redemption in Jesus. And we want you to know that and know about that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself. We know that you designed and created us to be your representatives and to rule this world with you, yet we, from the very beginning, did not remain loyal to you. 
Thank you for not forgetting us nor abandoning us, but instead sending your Son to be our true rescuer, King. Jesus, we thank you for leaving the glory of heaven so that you could come to us in the midst of our beautiful but broken world. We thank you for enduring the challenges and the temptations that are inherent to our world in order to show us how to truly live holy lives, including sexually holy lives, and then dying for all the times and ways in which we don't. Holy Spirit, we ask you to continue your good work in us, strengthen our hearts and our minds to resist all forms of sexual immorality. Teach us how to control our sexual desires and behaviors. Keep us from doing anything to wrong or to take advantage of a brother or sister. For we know that you live in us so that we can live holy lives. Continue to make us more like Jesus so that we may become more and more your agents of grace and gospel in this beautiful but broken world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.